This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we're going to talk to Dr. Richard Brown, director of the Mississippi Entomological Museum at Mississippi State. With a love for insects that spanned nearly six decades, Dr. Brown has plenty to share about the bugs found in Mississippi. We'll talk about what he's seeing right now and highlight the role of the moth in our ecosystem. And Dr. Major is here ready for your pet questions. To join the conversation, just give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 672-7464, or you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. With a reminder that uh, if you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday mornings, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby and Dr. Major. Hope that you're doing well. Good morning. Good morning. Doing good. So, Dr. Major, uh, how are things going at the clinic? I guess by now you've gotten into somewhat of a routine of having uh, your your uh, folks uh, pull up there and, and you bring the pets in and out, so uh, there's uh, maintaining social distancing. Are you getting any concerns or regards about pets and the coronavirus? Certainly uh, that question comes up. Uh, I think we discussed last week, you know, the fact that uh, some of the felines have tested uh, positive, not here, not here in Mississippi, but uh, certainly uh, at the Fort Brock Zoo and and at some other places. But uh, we really are not having. Uh, I think everybody's pretty comfortable with their pets, and uh, they uh, when I say comfortable, I'm saying that uh, they're not. Uh, that's not a big worry that that's communicable to the pets or from pets to people. You know, the last week uh, we talked about the idea of that pets can sometimes sense stress in, in humans. Uh, have you seen any sort of uptick of, of pets being stressed out by this whole thing? Well, I would say that probably somewhat similar to stress in people. And, you know, our, our cats and dogs are very intuitive uh, as far as, you know, think about the times that you've wanted to take the cat to the to the vet and you can't find it then. <laughs> And you haven't even told it or put the carrier out. So they, they're pretty smart, and they, they know when we're stressed, uh, and it, it carries on. Not every dog is like just not every person that gets stressed, but uh, we see a fair amount of stress diarrhea, unfortunately. And uh, I think I mentioned before that there's been more diarrhea cases, I think, in the last three weeks uh, since the uh, stay-at-home initiative uh, maybe the pets just are not used to having their pet owners at home, or maybe they're sharing more food with the pets than they would normally, and sometimes uh, food that they're not used to certainly can cause some diarrhea. The good thing is uh, the bond that we share with our pets, I think, is good for both of us. It, uh, it helps our pets, certainly someone to take care of them, but also I know that uh, it's nice having uh, another living creature around the house. We're not being able to interact with other humans too much, so it's great that we can continue to interact with our, with our little furry friends. Absolutely, and uh, prime example, uh, I have a, one of my uh, best cats. They're all best cats, but anyway, uh, three-legged kitty. Uh, we just call her Kitty. Uh, she normally sleeps at the foot of the bed at night, but she had to come in for surgery Monday. She had a, a small growth that had to be removed. And uh, it's amazing that when she came home, she went somewhere else to sleep that first night. <laughs> and now, now, she's, now she's back uh, with her regular routine. But uh, 
they're just like just like us. They have some issues uh, with either stress and or and it's with surgery. So uh, we're very fortunate to have pets, and I think they are very uh, what should I say helpful to us as far as relieving our stress. And uh, we try to take the best care of them we can. All right. So let me. Uh, how are things there? Uh, uh, what What are you seeing in and around your yard uh, these days? Um, let's see. We've enjoyed the last couple of days watching cedar wax wings, mostly cedar wax wings, but a very few orchard orioles mixed in there too, eating our um, mulberries as they become ripe. So that's been a fun thing to do. And mulberry, you know, is one of the trees that we've talked about. Or bushes, it, it it does become a tree, but you know, never great big. But um, a good thing to plant for um, birds if you want to attract birds for your yard. We were eating mulberries just a little bit and then the birds came and so we've not gotten any more but we've really enjoyed watching them um, and let's see we've also got indigo buntings and i think people are reporting indigo buntings um all around the state now so that's something definitely to look for that beautiful iridescent blue we've had our eastern blue birds here for a while well really we have them all winter long but uh, they've really been showing off and making their nests for the last few weeks. And now the indigo bunting's all showing up, and they're just an iridescent blue mix for your environment. You know, Lily, I mean, anyway, we had uh, little baby bluebirds. I peeped in the nest uh, the other day, and they were they were all in there doing well. And then oh, we so have your a, eggs have hatched. Oh. Yes, they have. And then we have mockingbird that's nesting by, right by the garage. Of course, that's going to be something else when we walk out of the garage and have, you know, they're very defensive. Uh, they will swoop down and attack you. Uh, yeah, you'll have to be careful. Fled, yeah. Fledglings out. But uh, I was impressed with the bluebirds, and I, I think they're taking good care of them. I, I try not to look, but I did look once just to be sure. And there were three babies, and... Uh, the uh, one of the parents is always at the door. If you walk close by, uh, looks like ready to attack. I don't know what a bluebird attack would be like, but anyway, they're they're pretty uh, pretty great to watch, and uh, that's very good. Uh, so Libby, uh, we had an email asked about uh, synchronized fireflies. Have we missed that uh, season, or is it yet to come? Remind us of when we would be able to look for those. For what now? I'm sorry. I'm... The synchronized fireflies. Oh, no, they'll be. That's why, you know, we often call them Mother's Day fireflies because they'll. So, about a month from now, that second weekend in May is usually when they show up. Okay, so something to look forward to there. Uh, in the news, Java found something that says that bear sightings in uh, Yosemite have quadrupled since the park was closed uh, to tourists due to coronavirus. The park wrote on Instagram under a post of bear climbing high in a tree that said, Yosemite National Park is home to about three to 500 black bears, though there hasn't been an increase in their population since the park closure. Bears have been seen more frequently than usual, likely due to the absence of visitors in Yosemite Valley. So I guess maybe some thoughts from, from either one of you or both. It's interesting to see how sort of uh, nature is reacting uh, to less human activity. Yes, you know, and I've, I've talked about that it would be fun to have cameras around at the state parks because um, we don't know what's going on there now that the campgrounds are um, almost empty and uh, there aren't people playing on the playgrounds or anything. But uh, wildlife is probably moving out of the shadows a little more everywhere. 
Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, some of the things we've seen from Chernobyl and the interesting uh, that people have been able to go into that area and see, uh, you know, again, we've got now, I think, close to 20, 25 years there. But it's interesting to see how uh, nature and wildlife can can take back over uh, when when humans, uh, for one reason or other, decide uh, that they uh, they don't want to uh, be involved anymore. So that's interesting. And I I think we'll probably continue to see an increase of that sort of thing of kind of uh, nature reclaiming itself uh, again while we're uh, sheltered in place and and waiting out uh, the the virus. Yeah, we don't want them to move out too. We don't we don't want to have to stay gone long enough for them to completely take over. But <laughs> I think it is pretty neat that they're all moving around. Oh, I'll mention too, uh, as far as baby birds, our Carolina wrens fledged yesterday, and we've got wood thrushes singing. So a few more things going on. All right. Uh, Time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll welcome our guest, Dr. Richard Brown, to the program. He's the director of the Mississippi Entomological Museum at Mississippi State. So we'll be talking about bugs, so stay tuned. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour is Dr. Richard Brown, director of the Mississippi Entomological Museum at Mississippi State. If you want to join the conversation with a question or comment, you can call us. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 7464 or you can email the show. Just send it to animals at MPB online.org. So Richard, thanks for joining us. Before we talk about the museum, talk a little bit about your background. Have you been a insect collector for a long time? Uh, Well, yes. I started when actually with arrowheads and fossils, but by the time I was 10, I'd switched to insects and haven't stopped. So that's been 60 years now. So uh, let me use a bad pun. What was it that put the bug in you about uh, collecting insects? <laughs> well, I was always interested in things that were different. And if there were two or three different things, I was interested in finding more. And when I got to insects, I it was nonstop from there on. So many different kinds. And I'm still seeing different kinds. Yeah, give us an idea in general about uh, the insect uh, kingdom, the the amount of insects on on planet Earth versus you know humans and and, and other species. I know it's they well outnumber us. I think if that's correct. Well, in numbers, of course, and 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 as well as in biomass, the weight of of insects on the Earth exceeds anything else. In terms of diversity. Um, we only have about a million species that have been described and named. Uh, some estimates say that's only a fraction, that we may have 20 million species on Earth because we're describing a several thousand new species every year. So how long have you been uh, with Mississippi State? I came here uh, 40 years ago. Okay. To, uh, Mississippi State, and I've really enjoyed it here. It's been a, a wonderful 
uh, time. Um, and, and I think I was surprised at the diversity of habitats in Mississippi. Um, just, you know, from prairie to bog to our coastal and inland dunes. And it's just been wonderful to explore these, this uh, diversity of habitats we have. And so if you would tell us a little bit about the Entomology Museum, uh, is it open to the public? Well, we do have public displays, and then we have the research collection that is open by appointment. If a call is made, uh, you can find this easily by Googling uh, Mississippi Entomological Museum. We have a web page, and we have in the research collection about 1.7 million specimens. Wow. Uh, we don't know how many different species we have, uh, but uh, we have one of the larger collections in the southeast, and in some groups of insects, like ants and moths, we have one of the best. And so if uh, someone wants uh, some sort of identification, again, then obviously that you would be the place to go, I would, I would think. Well, that's, uh, that's one of the advantages of having a collection because it's a reference tool. Um, you need a microscope and you need a collection to make identifications often. Uh, so it's it's got that value of aiding everyone in finding out what the insects are, be it eating up the rose plant or in unique habitats that may be threatened. We need to find out what kinds of things are there that are irreplaceable. And uh, then our, our research collection is used by workers around the world. Uh, we send specimens to other countries. We have people from other countries coming here to study and that's how we document our diversity is through these taxonomic studies that we do. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This hour we're going to be visiting with Dr. Richard Brown, director of the Mississippi Entomolo- Entomology Museum at Mississippi State. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Call us at one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We do have a caller on the line, so we say good morning to Mike calling in from Corinth. Go ahead, Mike. You're on the air with us. Uh, yes, I had uh, two different questions. One is concerning armadillos. I live between Corinth and Boonville out in the country, and this winter uh, was the first time that we didn't see any signs of armadillos. Uh, not that I'm fussing, but <laughs> I was just curious as to uh, why you think that this might have happened. Libby, any ideas? Well, I have them at my house, and I like to have them. I, I enjoy seeing them. They, I, I know they make a little bit of a mess, making a little. They kind of um, dig shallow furrows around the place, but um, I think they're around. There may be a possibly a big enough dog that's scaring them away from your area this year, or obviously something has changed. We had. Uh, They're interesting, guys. You know, we've had a show about them before. We may have to do another one. We, we had them so bad one winter, they unleveled my propane tank, and the propane company had to come out and level it back up. But uh, my other question is. Wow. Uh, no, that is, yeah, I can understand why you don't want to see those then. <laughs> uh, another question is concerning Japanese beetles. Uh, about three years ago, we started having Japanese beetles, and uh, I have to spray a lot. Uh, 
they are pretty devastating on roses and uh, even crepe yes. bottle blooms and so forth. And I, I guess my, my next question is, I, do we have them from now on? Richard can probably, I would say yes, but Richard needs to chime in on these. Um, Libby, I didn't hear the question. I'm sorry. It's about the Japanese beetles. Oh, the Japanese beetles. Yes, this these were brought in, uh, introduced in from Asia into the Washington, D.C. area, and uh, we found our first ones here in Mississippi up in Tishomingo County probably 20 years ago. They have spread uh, in other areas, but they don't do as well in Mississippi as in um, states to the north and east of us, but uh, we do have them here. Our caller, our caller was concerned about, he's had some devastation from them on his roses, he said, and um, wanted to know if we're just stuck with them and if there's anything that he should do that you might know about. Well, in terms of, of, of controlling them as pests, there are recommendations that our extension entomologists can provide. I can't do uh, recommendations for control of them. But uh, the beetles do feed on foliage and flowers, but the larvae will feed on turf and grass. And so they, it's a two-edged sword with Japanese beetles. Um, but in terms of, of uh, getting recommendations, I recommend that you contact your extension agent in your county. All right, very good. Uh, so we're visiting today with Dr. Richard Brown, director of the Mississippi Entomology Museum at Mississippi State. And Richard, you spent some time as a medical entomologist in the military. If you would, tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I was fortunate to, uh, I had orders for NOM, uh, and they were changed to where I would teach medical entomology at Fort Sam Houston for my two years. Um, but in the process uh what I learned, Army, the Army was way ahead in educational technology. We were using computer-assisted instruction in 1973. And we learned that in all the conflicts that the military has been involved with, more people have been carried off the battlefield from insect-borne disease than from bullets or uh, other factors. So. Insects have played a major role in disease transmission for military and throughout history, for that matter. What about West Nile? Is that still a concern? Because uh, mosquitoes uh, are usually quite uh, popular here uh, in uh, Mississippi in the summer months. Well, I don't know popular is not well, the right word to use, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, mosquitoes uh, have long been a problem in Mississippi. I, uh, I remember reading that uh, the university was closed back in the 20s from a yellow fever outbreak. But we've, we've dealt with yellow fever, but we still have West Nile. We had a peak in cases a couple of years ago. Um, this last year in Mississippi, I think we had around 20 cases of West Nile. But there's other diseases. There's a new one called chikungunya, which is, sounds exotic, and it is. And then we have Zika mm -hmm. uh, in the state. Uh, and we will, I think, continue to get these new and emergent uh, diseases uh, that uh, they may be viruses. And in the case of malaria, it's a, a plasmodium, uh, uh, you know, like uh, uh, 
that uh, causes deaths worldwide. And again, in Mississippi and the U.S., we're fortunate to have low incidence of malaria. Uh, what, what can we do to help protect against uh, diseases carried by insects? Well, the, the most important thing is if you go outdoors during the season when mosquitoes are active to use a pro- personal protective uh, technique, that is some type of insect repellent. And I always spray around the cuffs of my legs to keep off chiggers because mites also are a problem. Chiggers are a mite. Uh, and then spray around your waist and Anywhere there's skin exposed, you should spray with some type of repellent to avoid being bitten. And there are certain times of the days that are especially bad. Towards the dusk, uh, mosquitoes are more voracious. And so if you can time your, your walks or your activity to avoid those periods of peak mosquito activity, that's the best thing. Uh, Dr. Major, what about uh, insect-borne uh, diseases in our pets? Uh, I guess uh, fleas, uh, fleas is an insect, I would guess, but are some other things that we can be, should be concerned about uh, as the weather gets warmer in Mississippi? Well, certainly. Uh, of course, every, everyone should be familiar with heartworm disease, which is spread by mosquitoes. Uh, we're fortunate that uh, people are not a natural host for heartworms. Uh, occasionally, there will be a aberrant heartworm infection in a person, but uh, that's one of the most important ones in our in our animals. And I'm sure there are others. I was going to ask uh, a question about the Reduvidae beetle, the uh, bloodsucker conos, and it seems to be more popular now, or at least spreading more and more attention is being paid uh, to that. Uh, Dr. Brown, have you got anything to uh, mention about that? particular beetle that spreads uh, Chagas disease in the uh, right. Central America uh, primarily and uh, in southern uh, Mississippi and uh, in Louisiana, it seems to be causing in dogs uh, some heart issues, uh, whereas they, uh, actually thinking that maybe it was a heartworm causing a problem and actually it was uh, due to the infestation from the uh, beetle. Well, this refers to a, a genus of kissing bug, triatoma, right. uh, that uh, occurs throughout our area in Mississippi. Um, there's been reports on social media and elsewhere about Chagas disease and, you know, being spread, but I have not seen data to verify there have been cases of Chagas disease spread by the kissing bug in our area. Um uh, the, the the there's a trypanosome kind of if you know what trypanosomes are that cause this disease and when I was in the military we found the trypanosome in at Fort Sam Houston but it was non virulent so you okay. have to have the vector the kissing bug and you've got to have the virulent form of that causal organism in order to get Chagas. Uh, but Chagas remains a problem through Central and South America. I have not seen any reports from uh, CDC, Center for uh, Communicable Diseases, referring to presence of, of, of uh, Chagas here in Mississippi, but there may be that, that are unreported. Yes. Appreciate that. Thank you. 
All right, uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another break. When we get back, we will focus in on uh, one of Dr. Brown's areas of study, and that is the moth. We are visiting this hour with Dr. Richard Brown, director of the Mississippi Entomology Museum at Mississippi State. Uh, so Dr. Major is here ready to take some pet questions as well. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Antelope Medical Center in Jackson. It's Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest this hour is Dr. Richard Brown. You can join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464 or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. want to get into some discussion about the moth, but first we do have a call on the line. It's Ardell, I think, has a question for Dr. Major. Go ahead, Ardell. You're on the air with us. Hi. Thank you. Good morning. So I'm wondering if NuGuard, which is the generic version of HeartGuard, is safe and effective. Okay. Uh, I would say that the generic form is effective. Be very careful to give it the same time every month. Uh, that's most important. And uh, I would say that uh, I'm not familiar with that, but if it is the generic form of HeartGuard, it should be effective, yes. Okay. Because the price sure is better. <laughs> okay. All right, All right. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Ardell. Appreciate your calling in this morning. Uh, let's stay on the phone lines. Uh, and it looks like, uh, is this Naomi May is on the line with us? Go ahead, please. You're on the air. Hello. Uh, my daughter in Memphis got some little ducklings out of a storm drain. The mother was there frantic about them, and she found six little ducklings, two of them died. She's got four, and she's put them under a light and all that stuff, But she and it's got feed and water for them. But she wants to know if you know anyone who would take these ducklings and raise them. They're wild ducks. Libby, any thoughts on that? Libby, you with us? They're about two weeks old. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, um, you've just told a lot of people about these ducklings. <laughs> so if any of our listeners are interested in, in um, getting some ducklings, you probably should leave some contact information with us okay. so that we can let people know. How about that? Okay, that's fine. 
All right. Uh, thanks for your call. We'll put you on hold and again. If you could just leave maybe a phone number or some sort of contact information, and then if anybody contacts us, we can uh, pass along that information uh, to you. So appreciate that call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with Dr. Richard Brown, director of the Mississippi Entomology Museum at Mississippi State. Uh, so, Richard, uh, uh, moths are one of your specialties. Uh, tell us about uh, the moth population in Mississippi. Well, moths, the populations go up and down every year, depending on the species. We, we've, we've had moths flying since the 1st of January. Um, there are moths that fly, well, if it's over 35 degrees, you can get one species of moth called a canker worm, and then above 40, you get three or four. And even in January, above 50 degrees, you'll get 15 different species, different kinds of moths. And now, this time of year, it's possible to go out and get a couple of hundred of different kinds of moths. Um, the, The biggest problem we have with our diversity of moths, and it's not just for Mississippi, but everywhere, is urbanization and um, reduction of habitat and once uh, once we simplify cut down the forest simplify the habitat then we're going to lose some of that diversity of moths that we have so uh, the moths that we would find in mississippi give us an idea maybe of uh scale how small they might be how large they might be and, and what do some of these uh, moths look like well if you can imagine taking a toothpick one of those round toothpicks, Mm -hmm. there are moths that are the size of the width of that toothpick. Wow. So down to one millimeter in the wing spread. And then we get up to moths that we have in Mississippi, like Luna moths and Polyphemus, and you're talking about uh, six inches across in the wingspan. And the I work with the small ones because they're more poorly known. Um, the small moths, those that have wings that are around five to six millimeters, that's maybe a quarter of an inch. Um, they're they're ignored, and we have so many different kinds and new species of them. Here in my backyard, I've collected lots of new species of these. I call them micro moths. These small moths. So uh, how did the moths become one of your, your uh, areas of interest? Well, I think it was when I was a kid, again, going back to growing up my daddy's farm, and I would stay up late at night around the porch lights, and one night there was this pink and yellow moth that came in. And I later realized it's called the rosy maple moth. I thought it was the most beautiful moth. And then... Sometime about then, I found a, a Pandora Sphinx that had different shades of green. And I thought, my gosh, the, the colors of these things are just remarkable. So I lost interest in all the little brown beetles. Now, I've got <laughs> friends that will jump on me about all metallic blue and pretty beetles. But to me, there was just incredible color with, with the moths. And that's we think of them as being brown compared with butterflies, mm-hmm. but actually... They have some of the most amazing colors that far exceed what I have seen in any butterfly. 
but it's microscopic. (laughs) (laughs) We're visiting with Dr. Richard Brown, director of the Mississippi Entomology Museum at Mississippi State. And Dr. Brown will be with us throughout the hour. So if you have a question about moths or insects in general, he might could help you out. Call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. In the meantime, though, Steve has called in. Looks like another question for Dr. Major. Steve, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Oh, we lost Steve. Steve, if you could give us a call back, we'll go ahead and put you on the air. Uh, in the meantime, though, we'll continue talking about moths with uh, Dr. Brown. Uh, so what role do moths play in the ecosystem? Well, moths are, as with other insects, are a critical part of our ecosystem. And that's because they feed on a lot of different kinds of plants. And then birds are feeding on the moths and their caterpillars. And it's not just birds, but it's our bats flying at night. If you look at the diets of bats, a majority of what the insect-feeding bats, now some bats, you know, feed on fruits and other things, but the bats that feed on insects concentrate on moths. And they'll swoop them up on in flight with their tail and take that tail and put it up to their mouth. They can catch them with their wing as well when, when they're in flight. And so moths are a major component, very important component of the diets of our bats and birds. But in addition, in terms of just the whole ecosystem, there are so many other insects. Some are parasitoids and some are predators, and they're dependent upon the caterpillars for their food. Um, and then we have pollinators that are involved with moths that get overlooked often. Uh, there's that saying, like a moth to a flame. Are moths really attracted to uh, sources of light, and, and do we know why, if that's the case? That's been a, that's been a long-standing question, and there have been lots of ideas put out there. Uh, one idea is they're not attracted as much as they are confused. They're following at night. Maybe a male moth is following this pheromone trail the female is giving off and it's flying up wind and then it sees a light and gets confused i'm sure that happens with some i also suspect that many moths are attracted to light just as they are when they emerge from the dark the pupa in the soil or elsewhere they will go towards light and there's no one answer that can be applied to all of the cases that we know about but what we know is that moths can get confused by lights. They can be uh, perhaps attracted. There was even one idea that the moths use the moon to fly in a straight line by a light in the distance. And then as they approach an artificial light, they start going in circles. I don't have any data, or nor have I seen any to substantiate that, but it's an interesting idea. So we basically don't know for many things. Yeah, but that last uh, theory you were talking about, that would kind of explain how human intervention in the habitat might be altering uh, the moth's behavior somewhat. Well, yes, and if we, there are maps of light pollution, which is really, really intensified in the northeastern part of the country from Washington, D.C., all the way through Boston. And where we have this light pollution, uh, we notice that there are... Uh, declines, whether or not they're correlated, 
with populations of moths uh, in those areas. And there are other factors for decline of moths in some of our areas of the country. Uh, we have got another phone call, so we're going to talk to uh, Rufus, who's called in today. Good morning, Rufus. You're on the air with us. Good morning, sir. Thank you for having me. Sure, go ahead. I'm a beekeeper in Greenville. I'm on the road right now. I'm driving for a transportation company. My fact, I'm here at North Sunflower Medical Center, one of the better centers in the, in the state. But anyway, I, I'm a beekeeper, and I tell you, the moth has devastated my beehives in the past. Uh, I think the greater one and the lesser moth. Uh, and I'm, right. I'm not fond of them at all, at, at all, at all, doctor. But I use an organic uh, mixture to, to uh, get rid of them. I use a mixture of apple cider vinegar and with sugar, and I use a two-liter Coke bottle. I punch a hole in the top of it, and and uh, big enough just for them to get in and uh, mm-hmm. and feed on the on the mixture. But they can't fly out. They have to open their wings when they fly, so they die. So that's what I do to uh, control them. Otherwise, otherwise they would just devastate uh, my beehive. Well, these yeah, moths the actually, wax moths, uh, right? Yes, they can feed on wax. Uh-huh. Yeah, they and, love uh, it. Yeah. Uh, now, if if the hive is healthy, there, my understanding is there won't be as many problems with wax moths. But we do have a person in in our department here at Mississippi State, Jeff Harris. You may know him. I've heard uh, of him, yes, sir. And and so he's the person that can give recommendations if you if you can get his address or just Google Jeff Harris and apiculture or beekeeping uh, and make contact with him. He may have some suggestions. Very good, sir. I will do that. I will do that. And I enjoy the show. I listen to it quite often also. And thank you very much. Got to get back to work now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Rufus, uh, thanks for calling in. Let's go ahead. We'll take another break. Uh, we are visiting throughout the hour on Creature Conference with Dr. Richard Brown, Director of the Mississippi Entomology Museum at Mississippi State. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast using any podcasting app if you want to hear back episodes of Creature Comforts, or you can download the MPB Public Media app. Back to wrap up the program after this final break. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting on Creature Comforts this hour with Dr. Richard Brown, who is director of the Mississippi Entomology Museum at Mississippi State. Before we dive back into our moth discussion, uh, Dr. Major, if I'm not mistaken, you uh, were an insect or are an insect collector. If you would, maybe tell us what uh, what insects did you like to collect? Well, uh, I'm pretty, uh, what shall I say, widespread. Uh, I got started when my kids were in school and they had to get a, a collection. But I'd also, like Dr. Brown, had been interested in insects. My mom would have told you that I've turned over every rock and uh, so forth and so on, just uh, looking for insects. But the, uh, the the amazing thing, and I allude to the light situation, uh, it seems to me that uh, 10, 15 years ago, there were more moths uh, attracted to lights. And I always noticed uh, if you went by 
early in the morning you could see the birds they were doing the cleanup crew they would they would go and, and catch these moths that had been drawn drawn to the lights but i have uh, a pretty good collection of uh, butterflies moths and beetles uh and uh really enjoy it and uh when i retire if i ever retire i will do some labeling i don't have all of my <laughs> label properly but i can tell you just about everywhere that i had taken uh, a specimen though so it's interesting certainly all right uh, dr brown uh, let's talk moths versus butterflies and if you could compare and contrast the two yes um the uh, we sort of learned in grade school, you know, butterfly flies in the day and have this clubbed antenna. Moths fly at night, but actually, butterflies are just a group of day flying moths. Um, you can't um, separate them by the type of antenna. Always, there are moths that fly during the day. There's even one group of butterflies down in. Central America that fly at night, but typically we think it's the, the day flying Lepidoptera, the day flying um, referring to butterflies, and they tend to be more colorful, whereas most moths fly at night. Uh, other than that, there's uh, lots of you know differences in the details of the morphology. Um, butterflies are more popular with people and we have butterfly gardens and we have you know books for butterfly watching butterflies through binoculars um so it's comparable with people who like enjoy watching birds so there's this other group that enjoy watching butterflies and many of them enjoy taking photographs of them um and there's a great website called iNaturalist where anyone can take a photograph of an insect, beetle or butterfly or moth, and submit it and can usually get an identification on this iNaturalist. So butterflies and moths are all the same group. Uh, the moths tend to be larger and showier and get more attention. Uh, why are some moths considered economically important pests? There's, there's probably not a single crop that we grow that doesn't have some kind of caterpillar from a, a moth that feeds on it. There's not many uh, pest butterflies, but we do have many, many kinds of moths from going back historically to bow worm and bud worms, corn borers and sod web worms. And it doesn't matter what kind of habitat that you have. Uh, agricultural habitat, there, there's going to be species that are pests. And then when you harvest the grain, put it in storage, there's going to be other moths that feed on it in storage. And if you bring it in your house, you'll get flower moths and grain moths that will infest your stored food. So there, there's many of, of the, the moths that are economically, uh, you know, costly to us. We have got a caller on the line, so our friend Timothy has called in. Timothy, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning, y'all. Morning. I, I have a question and a statement. The question is, I was uh, I, I came across a dead snake yesterday. It had been run over in the road, and I was walking along, and there's this dead snake, and there are like six butterflies 
um, on the dead snake, and they have extended a proboscis and are like sucking something up out of the wound of the, uh, on the snake. They were black with like some blue uh, markings on the wings. Dr. Brown, the yeah. question, question's about a dead snake and yeah. some butterflies. Right. Any, any thoughts oh. there? We think of butterflies as being these beautiful things, missing flowers in our flower garden, but actually many of them require salts, nutrients, elements that are found in decaying animal matter. So a dead snake, a dead turtle, a dead, any other kind of animal can attract butterflies to get nutrients and salts from them. Uh, and so that's not unusual. It's not a pretty sight from the standpoint of seeing butterflies on a dead snake, but it's a reality that they often visit dead animals. Mm-hmm. And mainly that they get moisture and salts, right? Yes. And I also want to report that I have um, a good crop of, uh, of um, lightning bugs this year in my woods. Oh, good, good. And and they were two weeks earlier than they were last year. Oh, I'm glad you're keeping up with that. Now, were these um, high up in the trees, flashing pretty fast? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. High up in the trees. Yeah, treetop flashers. That was the first thing I saw as well this year. And on the slow down, these last few cold nights. Yes. All right, uh, Timothy, good to hear from you. Thanks for the report. Uh, let's uh, focus on another insect uh, in Mississippi for just a few minutes, Dr. Brown, and that is ants. A lot of people would say ants are kind of annoying, but again, I imagine they have a role uh, in the ecosystem. So tell us a little bit about ants. Well, yes, uh, we have about uh, 190 different kinds of ants in Mississippi, and, and they do everything from prey on other insects to take sugar and honeydew from aphids. They feed on plant materials. We have ants that gather seeds in Mississippi, harvester ants, and take them into their nest. We have ants that cut off pieces of leaves and grow a fungus on them. So we've got ants here that farm fungus and eat the fruiting bodies of the fungus. So you can think about all kinds of strategies and lifestyles, and you'll find them with the ants, which are just fascinating because of their social behavior. Now, unfortunately, of the 190 species we have, about 30 are introduced from other countries. And of those, about five or six have become invasive and are pests. Now, we all know about fire ants, imported fire ants, but we have... This tawny crazy ant on the coast, that's a big problem. And we have some others that become pests uh, and they're brought in from other countries. But fortunately, we've got a lot of very interesting ants. Some have their whole colony in an acorn in the forest. Their whole colony is inside an acorn that had a hole in it. So, yes, tremendous diversity, fascinating insects. All right. Uh, what about uh, folks, uh, you know, we're all sheltered in home, so folks not going out as much, and I uh, think uh, maybe families looking for things to do and interesting things to explore. Uh, do you have a good online resource uh, to learn more about uh, the variety of insects we have out there? Well, I think the best one, if you're looking for diversity, is called Bug Guide, B-U-G-G-U-I-D-E, Bug Guide. 
And they have a lot of the different kinds of insects that are photographed you can use for identification. Uh, we have here on our museum site, university site, the Moth Photographers Group that has over 100,000 images of moths and caterpillars. And that would be an excellent resource for anyone to check, the Moth Photographers Group. All right, but again, you know, this is something uh, that I guess if uh, folks are looking for something for kids at home, not at school, uh, your backyard probably could find all different kinds of insects, and then maybe Bug Guide would be a way for them to kind of figure out what it is they've seen in their backyard. Yes, and if it's a moth, they can look at Moth Photographer's Group. And there are other sites on dragonflies, for example, that have beautiful photographs. So there's many, fortunately, we have many electronic resources. may take some searching, or I can be contacted to recommend particular sites. All right. It's been a fascinating hour, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Uh, That's going to wrap us up. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. If you need to hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Our show is produced by java chapman and our call screener was liz gill so for libby hartfield dr troy major and our guest dr richard brown i'm kevin farrell up next at 10 it's autocorrect with the lady auto mechanic allison walker we'll be back next thursday at nine for another creature comforts it's heard only on mpb think radio